Hello, this is just a quick message from Stushy Headquarters. You may have heard there was some breaking political news on Friday afternoon. Unfortunately for us, that news broke just as we finished recording this week's episode. We did consider re-recording, but we didn't want to lose what we felt was quite an important discussion on this week's party conferences. Plus, as I'm sure you're aware, politics moves so quickly these days that there's no guarantee we wouldn't have another major sacking or resignation by the time we finished. So, without further ado, here is this week's episode. The next general election is 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 going to be a very key vote for, for us and making sure that we are getting out there, get, getting getting campaigning with, with a clear vision for, for what an independent Scotland will look like is really, really important. And this weekend uh, kicks that off for, for us in, in many ways. That was North East Green's MSP Maggie Chapman and we'll hear more from her later in the show. Before that though, hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Derek Healy and on this episode I'll be joined by Rachel Amory and Justin Bowie as we have a look ahead to the Scottish Greens conference in Dundee and run the rule over the past week in Scottish politics. First things first, with Scottish Green Party members set to descend on the City of Discovery this weekend, our colleague Adele Merson has been speaking to Maggie Chapman about some of the big talking points as things get underway. The Greens are now in government after entering into a power-sharing agreement with the SNP, so could this conference look different to any other in their history? Adele started off by asking what members and the wider public can expect. At this weekend's conference, we are in Dundee, obviously, which is one of Scotland's two yes cities. And given the, the broader uh, co- political context of, of Scottish politics at the moment, we will be talking about our prospectus for an, an independent Scotland and what that looks like. We know that uh, the, the next general election is, is, is going to be a very key vote for, for us and making sure that we are getting out there, get, getting, getting campaigning with, with a clear vision for, for what an independent Scotland will look like is really, really important. And this weekend uh, kicks that off for, for us in, in many ways. But we've also got lots of, lots of other bits and pieces to, to be dealing with. Um, as as you, you probably know, our party conference is very much led by our members and our members get to decide on which motions on on what motions get put forward to conference and what motions get debated on and and then our members get to debate so we have a one member one vote system and there are a whole host of of different motions that we will be discussing from uh, policies such as uh, reviewing our 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 justice policy to looking at our defense policy so covering a whole wide range of things from from justice to defense transport to housing and and everything in between. And as you've alluded to there, this is an event really for the grassroots of the party of the party to have their say around policy. Yeah, I'm interested just in terms of how the last year or so has gone. Now you're a party that is actually in government. Mm. So, so I think the last year, in many ways, has has gone well for us. We have been able to get some significant things uh, passed and, and agreed to by the Scottish government and, and implemented. So we, we saw the rollout of the the Scottish Greens uh, position on on free public transport, free public transport for under twenty ones. Um, we were instrumental in the half a billion just transition fund that was part of the Butte House agreement that we agreed with the Scottish government last year. Earlier in the week, we saw more. In 
information being announced by the Scottish Government uh, about the, the different projects that, that were successful. One of the key elements of that has been a project, a campaign very close to my heart, and that's the campaign for North East Rail, making sure that we have a, a very, very clear connection uh, programme for, for, North, for the North East that will benefit Dundee, it will benefit the North East more generally, and actually Scotland more broadly as we tackle supply chain issues, transport issues and commuting issues across the region. But there, there are other, other things as well. I was particularly proud that we were able to see the increase to the Scottish child payment earlier in the year and vitally important, the mitigation of the benefits cap. That came about as a result of having Greens in government, having that relationship with, with, with the Scottish government. And of course, last week we saw the legislation passed by a majority of, of, the parliament, of parliamentarians on a rent freeze, which will see tenants protected through, through winter, both in terms of uh, rent prices, but also in terms of that no eviction policy. So it's really significant achievements, I think, for uh, for for the Greens being part of of that cooperation agreement with the Scottish government. And just uh, turning now to a couple of other policies. Mm. Uh, yesterday, Nicola Sturgeon announced proposals for using remaining oil and gas revenues to set up an independence investment fund. Just curious as to what you make of this proposal, given your party, you know, wants to see oil and gas production wound down. Yeah, I, I, so I, I haven't I haven't examined that that proposal in, in detail yet. I I will do over, over the coming days. But I think one of the one of the key things that we know um, for a whole variety of reasons, the UK because it, it, it clearly happened under the UK's watch. The UK missed out on the huge opportunities of an oil fund in the same way as as you know in the way that Norway has you know a very very wealthy fund that it can now use to good social and environmental purpose um the UK decided not to do that to to go down that route instead choosing and it was a choice choosing to let the wealth of the oil and gas uh, fields of the North Sea, uh, Scotland's oil and gas fields, go into private uh, private ownership to be offshored to, to fund to, uh, and, and to support private, private wealth growth. I think that was a mistake. That was a mistake in the 70s. And when there were different opportunities to change it and the UK government di didn't, I think that was a mistake. So I think if if there is the possibility of using the, any revenues that still exist, whilst we whilst we see the decline in, in fossil fuel extraction, because we know we have to, um, not not simply to meet climate targets. This isn't just about meeting climate targets. This is actually about saving the planet. So while whilst we see that decline, I think it is only right that any investments, any any wealth that is that does come out of oil and gas should be repurposed into social and environmental good. We obviously want to see the ex uh, the extraction of oil and gas stop as you know at, as soon as possible. We don't see fossil fuels as playing a part of our energy future, and we want we we wish that we'd use that investment to really upscale our renewables in infrastructure. Scotland has the bulk of Europe's renewable potentials, and we haven't been able to maximise that. We haven't been able to secure an energy future on that yet because of the decisions the Westminster government has taken over, over the last few decades. With independence, we know we have the opportunity to change that. And before we get there, we need to be, be doing everything we can to make sure that oil and gas revenues are ploughed into social and environmental good. 
You say there that you know you would like oil and gas uh, production to halt as, as soon as as soon as is possible. Is there any kind of mm. more definitive timescale that the Greens would like to see that happen by? I mean, I, th- I think we, we do have to be clear about this. We we wanted to we wanted to make sure that the the transition away from oil and gas started decades ago, and we. We haven't seen that happen at the speed or or, or at the pace that that we would have wished. What we need to make sure we do is use the resources we have through things like the the Northeastern Murray Just Transition Fund, through other just transition support to ensure that we do that as soon as possible. We know that the IPCC, international climate scientists, are telling us that we have until 2030 to get climate catastrophe under control. And... We saw at COP26 in Glasgow last year, you know, the promise to keep uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees, keep keep that that dream of 1.5 warming uh, degrees warming alive. And I find I find that quite incredible because one a 1.5 degree warming is is a death sentence to other some parts of of the world. It may not be be that dramatic in Scotland or in the UK or even in in Europe more generally, but we know for Pacific Islanders, for other parts of the global south, 1.5 degrees is already a death sentence. Climate change is, is already killing people. It's already destroying crops, it's destroying livestock, it's destroying communities. And we have to we have to take the science seriously and we have to be very very clear that action we need to act now like we haven't acted before and it is urgent it's not something that we can put off until ne- the next decade we have until 2030 to get this under control and uh, last time we had you on this issue we discussed plans mm. to fully dual the a96 which you didn't mm. think would be viable on sort of climate grounds there's been a spate of road deaths on a different road uh, the a9 recently and as a result of that, there's been kind of more and more calls in the last couple of months for revised timescales for both the A9 and the A96, as it's pretty clear the current kind of timeline can't be met anymore. Um, do you not believe dueling these roads would improve road safety? We do need to make our roads safer. Safety has to be paramount. But we also know that dueling roads, uh, expanding the, the road infrastructure only encourages Uh, faster traffic and more traffic. What we need to make sure is that we focus on a a transport system that's fit for the future, not one that's stuck in the 20th century. You know, we're 22 years into the 21st century now, and really our our transport infrastructure has not kept up. We we know that the safest form of travel um, is rail, and yet our rail infrastructure is woefully um, inadequate. That is why we've, we, we, as part of the Butas Agreement, the Scottish Greens secured record investment in our rail infrastructure. But, but on the point of, of duelling and, and the climate targets, I think it's not just about looking at what we've got now and tweaking and tinkering around the edges to see how we can make our existing systems and, and processes uh, greener or, 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 or you know, fit fit for the future, for, for a sustainable uh, future in terms of, of the climate emergency, what we need to make sure is we're looking at environmental responsibility alongside safety, alongside how industry is, is going to be changing over, over the coming decades. And the infrastructure we've got now isn't the in- infrastructure of the future. Is it not the case, though, that there needs to be, you know, for a lot of these communities in the north, they- 
they rely on the car because there aren't so many other options in terms of rail. Do you think we need to really speed up when it comes to rail improvements, for example, for further north? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we, tinkering around a, a failing road system is only putting a sticking plaster on the problem. What we need to do is actually tackle the source of the issue, and that is woefully inadequate rail and other public transport infrastructure across the northeast. The campaign for Northeast Rail that I mentioned earlier, they have just uh, been successful in getting money from the Just Transition Fund to. Uh, take forward their, their uh, feasibility studies to connect Peterhead and Fraserburgh to, to the rail to the rail network. And we know Peterhead and Fraserburgh are the, t- the two uh, towns, the two towns in the UK that are furthest away from, from the rail network. For the northeast, I mean, that, that, that should be, that, that's shameful for those two towns to be so far away from decent public infrastructure uh, public transport infrastructure is, is something that we have to remedy. We have to get that right. And we then need to also, as well as that, look at how we connect the smaller towns and, and, and more rural areas as well. Because what we know is that when when we build a transport infrastructure that connects smaller places to larger um cities or or urban areas, what often happens is that there's a drain into that larger city, larger area. We've seen that happen with the southeast of England and and London. We've seen that happen in Scotland across the central belt, quite frankly. And so what we need, what we need to make sure is that our investment into public transport in the northeast secures the communities in the northeast and doesn't just continue the cycle of requiring them to travel to the central belt or even to the cities of the northeast. We need sustainable regional economies and our transport infrastructure needs to support those. Well, I think a really interesting interview there. Um, Rachel, you and I are going to be covering the Greens conference this weekend. I was interested there in the focus on independence and Maggie Chapman's answers. You know, we're in the midst of a climate crisis, but it was actually some time until she mentioned that, although I should say she spoke about it quite passionately when she did. Um, independence was the first thing she spoke about. Do you think we're going to see a similar focus this weekend? There will, of course, be a lot about independence at this weekend's conference. That's probably one of the main reasons that the SNP invited them into a power-sharing agreement in Holyrood. But I think as well, there will still be a lot about climate, um, about the climate crisis. If you have a look at the programme of what's going to happen, we've got um, a sort of carbon land tax, social housing, rewilding, um, lots on food, how, the, how we can use food to um, tackle climate change as well, um, education and its role within climate change too. So I think if you actually do look at the programme, um, there will be a lot on climate change, but there will also be a lot on independence as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see the balance between independence and the climate emergency at the conference, I think, because I think people might be a bit surprised at how much independence is perhaps talked about. Yeah, and we will obviously bring you all the twists and turns um, this weekend on the Courier and Press and Journal websites. Um, I spoke about the SNP conference last week for the Courier Daily podcast, and I remember saying that it couldn't really have come at a better time because the SNP were up in the polls and the UK government was and is imploding over their controversial tax cuts. Um, the Greens are also looking good in the polls at the moment, and co-leaders Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater know they go into the conference having just helped to pass landmark legislation to cap rents, bring in free bus travel for young people and all of the things that Maggie Chapman mentioned there. Um, But at the same time, party members are discussing 
whether to split the leadership from their ministerial roles. Um, in effect, that would force Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater to choose between continuing as co-leaders or continuing in government. We broke that story as an exclusive, and it was set to be discussed on Thursday night at the Greens AGM ahead of the conference. However, a vote on whether to go through with that has now been delayed, and we are expecting that it should come up again this weekend. Um, Justin, Maggie Chapman spoke about how being in government has been a, a huge learning curve, curve for the Greens. Um, what do you think we're likely to see coming out of that motion this weekend? Well, it's hard to know what the inner workings of the Greens are going to be in regards to this, but I would be somewhat surprised if this passes. I suppose the logic behind it, as you say, is splitting the ministerial roles from the party leadership. The Greens emphasise that they have often done things differently. They are the only party in Holyrood that has two leaders. They obviously like to pursue a slightly more cooperative model than other parties who have a perhaps a more top-down approach. But at the same time, you could argue there are certain flaws with this plan. You know, what if they make someone new the leader, but they become a government minister in time? How would it work in future if the Greens perhaps were in a more formal coalition and had more roles where essentially all of their MSPs were in government? So you can understand the logic on something like the rent freezes, for example. It seems clear that when the Greens first rejected this alongside the SNP, some of the party membership was obviously maybe quite irritated by that. They wanted more radical action. But the legislation still has been passed. There is a clear emphasis from the Greens that they've played a big part in that. And I imagine the party membership, when they look at the polling and when they look at last year's record election result and even this year's election result in the council elections, I imagine beyond the procedural elements, most of them will be quite happy with the leadership of Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got in on one hand the performance uh, you know, at elections has been good and at the polls it looks as if they're doing well. But I know that the background to this is that some members have been unhappy with the performance of the two co-leaders within their ministerial roles. Um, the Greens have just secured that rent cap legislation, but some members felt they should have been supporting an emergency rent freeze proposed by Labour's Mercedes Villalba, as you say, kind of more radical action. And there have been other issues as well where Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater have not, and perhaps could not, speak out in the way that um, members may have liked. Uh, Rachel, this would be an incredible move if this motion was passed. Um, how awkward has it been for the Greens in government? I know there were some early sort of teething issues in some areas where they had previously been at odds with the government and now they're in the government. Are we still seeing a lot of that going on? I think it has calmed down um, in the past year that they have been in government. I think, remember right at the very beginning, there was a bit of embarrassment with Lorna Slater with the deposit return scheme. That was a huge thing that she wanted to pursue with them, sort of promoting recycling. And uh, I mean, it was quite embarrassing for her to have to stand up as our, in her first sort of role um, as a government minister and basically backtrack on what she'd been campaigning for. Um, but I think, the like you were saying, the emergency rent freeze and, and the eviction ban that was brought in, I think that will have changed a lot because, as you were saying, when this motion was first sort of discussed, that wasn't... I don't think that had been um, passed, had it? So I think having that passed in government might make a bit of a difference there um, to the grassroots activists, yeah. It's going, to, it's going to be fascinating to see what comes out of it. It's going to be a really interesting watch, I think. Definitely, yeah. Um, but the Greens aren't the only show on the road this weekend. Um, we also have the Alba Conference in Stirling. Uh, this is our second party conference, and it comes after a pretty disappointing showing in the council elections earlier this year. 
Um, you get the sense, I think, that maybe this is a party still fighting for relevance on the bigger stage. We'll have a speech from Alex Salmond on Sunday, I believe. Um, but beyond that, there'll be a question over how much the wider public is paying attention uh, Justin, talk us through what we can expect there. Yeah, well, I, th- I think you're absolutely right when you talk about fighting for relevance. Obviously, at the Alba party, will want to push their case for independence. They will probably argue that the SNP are not doing enough at the moment. Uh, we've seen some arguments from Alba party figures that Nicola Sturgeon should have approached this differently in terms of going to the Supreme Court and the kind of how that's worked this week. But the issue for Alba is that they don't have any MSPs, they don't have any councillors, they still have two MPs, but both of those um, MPs were not elected as Alba party MPs. So in effect, nobody from the Alba party has won election in Scotland, and if you can't get a seat at any level, most people are probably not going to pay attention to you. It also does to show that for most people, they obviously don't particularly like what Alba is offering, they have no interest in voting for them either. So, in some ways, it's going to probably feel like a party shouting into the wind a little bit. I suppose, at a more local level, the MPs that they do have have tried to fight for local issues. They will be aware that there is a local election, or sorry, a a general election coming up at some point in the next few years. So, you know, they've still been kind of fighting local issues, trying to make their voices heard. And I suppose that may be the only solace for Albert at the moment, that they do have local representatives in Westminster still in power. Yeah, as, as you say, they have those two M- MPs. Um, Neil Hanvey, uh, one of those MPs, played an important role, along with the SNP's Douglas Chapman, in pushing for the return of a, of a direct ferry link to Europe in Recife. Um, they've obviously, you know, both him and Ken McCaskill have been involved in, in lots of other local issues. Is it just the case that the, the party is going to live or die on the popularity of Alex Salmond as long as he's leader? He's such a big figure, isn't he, Justin? So, I mean, he founded the party. He is, as you say, the leader. There are prominent figures beyond him. Someone like Kenny McCaskill was a heavy hitter at Holyrood, obviously Justice Secretary for a number of years. There's former kind of MPs in there and well-known councillors. But when you saw what happened at the council election this year, there were prominent councillors who had been within the SNP for years and they still sunk and it all does come back to Alex Salmond. He's the leader. He's by far the biggest figure at the party. His poll ratings have not often been great since he kind of took over the Alba leadership, or less took over the leadership since he founded the party. So it's hard to see them moving beyond him as a party, and it's hard to see them really being all that successful going forward. Yeah. Well, Alex Salmond isn't the only political leader who is struggling for popularity at the moment. It's been another bruising week for Liz Truss as Prime Minister, um, we had MPs openly criticise her leadership after a disappointing performance in front of the 1922 committee. Uh, we've seen rumours that the Chancellor was about to resign at one stage and uh, more tumultuous times in the financial market in recent days. Rachel, this must surely rank with the worst starts of any Prime Minister ever. Where do we go from here? Yeah, it's quite it's quite strange to think that she's actually only been Prime Minister for just over a month. Um, how can all of that happen in just a month? Um, but yeah, it, when you're saying that, I mean, um, as we're recording this podcast, um, Liz Truss has had to cancel some constituency meetings. Um, the Chancellor has had to cut short a trip to the US and fly back as well. And we've just had notification that there's going to be a press conference as well, um, and some of the mutterings are that there could be more U-turns on the Chancellor's mini budget that went so badly wrong for them earlier, um, in her in her short time as Prime Minister. It, it, it's 
yeah, it, the, for being in the first month, that's really not great. Um, and as you said, there's a, there's a lot of um, talk as well about people handing in letters to the 1922 committee of um, no confidence. Now, if 54 letters of no confidence are handed into that committee, that could trigger a no confidence vote in the Prime Minister. But um, am, I, am I right in saying that the Prime Minister can't face a no confidence vote in the first 12 months? Is that right? So apparently, I, I read some, some conversation around this today, Apparently that's purely academic. Ah. And that is just something that they observe out of courtesy. It's not actually one of the rules. Apparently, again, I mean, I think there's a bit of a lack of clarity on that. So take that, take that with a little bit of a pinch of salt. But that's that's what I heard, certainly. That's an interesting thing to think about then because it does sound like she's not very popular at all and people are just... Her, her polling rating's going way down. It sounds like she's uh, even more unpopular than Boris Johnson was and let's not forget he was forced out the door because of how unpopular he was. So that is um, not a great start. But the thing is, though, who, who would replace Liz Truss? Um, are, are we then looking to sort of Rishi Sunak, um, the runner-up? Is he then potentially poised to, to take over there? Um, who knows? It's a difficult one to know who would actually replace her if she was to go. Um and I don't think she'd want to go. She's had to work hard to, to become Prime Minister, whether you think she's done a good job of it or not. Um, I don't think she'd want to give it all up after just a month or so. Do, do you know when that when that news came out about this this conference that's coming up later this afternoon and these reports of further U-turns, um, I, I mentioned feeling almost a little bit sorry for uh, Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross because every time these U-turns are made, he then gets asked, what's your position? And it must be incredibly difficult. I certainly don't envy him. Um Having having to answer some of those questions sometimes, um, he was he was actually met with laughter when he appeared in question time, and he said that he believes that Liz Truss could win the win the next election. Um, let's have a listen back to, to what was said there. First of the yes, first of the back there with the white t-shirt. Douglas, do you think Liz Truss will win the next general election? Yes, uh, look, uh, I, I want the Conservatives to win every election. Well, no, because, well, I can just imagine what you'd say, Fiona, if I said no there. But I want the Conservatives to win every uh, election. Uh, and I always but, but the question is, do you think Liz Truss will win the Well, next I, it was, do I want Liz Truss to win the next election? And I do. I want the leader no, said, of the Conservative think, Party said, to sorry, win. I said, do you think she sorry, will Sorry, I think you said you win. want to. No, do you well, think she will win? Look, we're a long way out from the next election. The opinion polls just now are very difficult for the party. But for me... The opinion polls. Yes no? yeah, yes and I said yes. I did say yes right at the win? top. Yes, I do. Wow. Because I think we can get the economy back up and running again. I think we can help people. Clearly, Annis thinks Keir Starmer can win the next election. Clearly, John Swinney thinks if the Supreme Court doesn't go his way, then the SNP can win a de facto referendum. That's what every party wants their party to win. To quote the new king, dear oh dear. Um, I think you touched on Rachel. We've had suggestions that a, a so called unity candidate could be brought in to replace Liz Truss. And um, the bookies have slashed their odds even on, on Boris Johnson going back into number 10. It seems impossible, really, that anything like that could happen without a general election being called. Um, so I'm going to put you both in the spot here. Will we see an election next year? Justin, let's start with you. Um, when first trust first came into power, I would have said no. I think now yes. And Rachel, what about you? Well, it's just, just to cause some division, I'll say no, because I, I think the Conservatives... We're, are probably they probably know that it's a bit of a sinking ship and they probably would struggle to win a general election. So I think they'd want to avoid that at all costs. So just to be controversial okay, against Justin, I will say no. So do you think then that Liz Truss will carry on? Now that's, that's the, that is the interesting bit, isn't it? <laughs> well, is it, is in a year's time, will she still be the Prime Minister? Hmm.
regular listeners will know exactly what that jingle means. Uh, every week we like to pick out the best stories that have caught our eye. Uh, so Justin, let's start with you. What's grabbed your attention this week? So one that I found quite interesting was a story written by our colleague uh, Callum who wrote that Islanders in Scotland had been essentially ignored um, by an SNP fund to help people buy their first homes. Obviously for Scotland's Islanders it can be quite difficult to, to find a place to stay House prices are high on a lot of islands, there is often a housing shortage as well, but we found that just 0.6% of first-time buyers who were helped under this scheme were based in either Orkney, Shetland and the Western Isles. So I thought this was an interesting one. The SNP have obviously at times tried to promote schemes to help islanders, whether it be with you know cost of living, energy costs at the moment due to high fuel poverty, or when it comes to housing, but it shows that a lot of this is not cutting through and islanders, I suppose, essentially, as is often the case, as we often report on, um, being left with the short end of the stick. Yeah, a great story of that from Callum this week. Um, Rachel, what about you? What's caught your eye? I actually got to write quite a fun story this week. We've had lots of uh, sort of... Um sort of a bit more drier stories um, with um, obviously what's happening in Westminster and the Supreme Court rulings over independence. But um, I was able to write about um, sort of can we link up Dundee with Iceland in, and its gaming industries? Um, it's a bit bit different. Um, basically, there's an Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik um, right, happening right now. There's some a delegation from Orkney there, Angus Robertson is there, um, and Scotland office is there too. Um, and I got to speak to Malcolm Offord from the Scotland office. And he was visiting some of the gaming companies based in Iceland and thought, can we link that up with Dundee? Because obviously Dundee's a worldwide name when it comes to gaming. Let's, if you think about Abertee, all the courses there, all the games that have come out of, of um, Dundee. And of course, there's the 4,000-seater esports arena getting built on the waterfront. Um, now, I'm not a gamer at all, but I think even I would like to go and watch some esports there when it eventually gets built. Um, so he was talking about, can we have a student exchange programme? Can we have... Um, sort of business exchanges between Iceland and Dundee. Um, can can the esports um, clubs and esports teams be joined together as well? Um, so that's really quite interesting. I thought, like, can can Dundee and Iceland get joined together through their gaming industries? Um, so it's an interesting thought to have, um, and a bit, bit bit of fun as well for um, the politics team this week. Yeah, right. A really interesting story, and one that was a little bit lighter. And and um, anyone interested in reading either of those stories can find them on our website right now. Um, some really interesting stuff this week but I think that's probably all we have time for um, just time to quickly thank Rachel and Justin our producer Caroline White and of course to you for listening uh, we'll be back next week with more but until then and even after then pick up or log on to The Courier The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushi Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.